Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to lead us as we open his word. God, minister to us through your word. I think about what Amos says about a famine coming on the land, but it's a famine where your word is lacking. And so, Lord, feed us from your word and encourage us by it, even though the prophets say hard things. Um, Let us see through these things to see Christ behind them, Christ speaking them, Christ proclaiming them. Bless our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, open your Bible with me to Amos, and this is the third Sunday that we are going through um, the minor prophets, the neglected prophets. And let me just acknowledge something at the outset when it comes to the prophets, okay? Hopefully you read some of Amos or, or even all of Amos this last week. Uh, I want to encourage you to be reading uh, these prophets. And maybe you notice, like me, Amos says some really hard things, doesn't he? Uh, actually, all of the minors, minor prophets say hard things. Actually, all the prophets say hard things. I just finished Isaiah, and I'm in Jeremiah now. Uh, the prophets are sort of like annual performance reviews at work, where your boss says, you're a terrible employee, you stink at this, but I'm going to let you keep your job. And it's one thing for us to read that kind of feedback out of God's Word because the Bible is God's Word and God's God and God can do whatever He wants. He can say what He wants. But something that's been on my heart is it's another thing to hear these kinds of messages out of the mouth of your pastor, isn't it? It sounds harsh. It sounds maybe unloving. It might lead to some painful self-reflection if you got enough sleep last night and you're not sleeping now. And just what I'm trying to get at is these, the minor prophets, these are hard books to preach. And maybe that's why they're the neglected prophets. People generally don't want to hear this stuff. Uh, In chapter 7 of Amos, if you read it this week, verses 10 through 13, I'm not going to make a big deal about this, but the corrupt priest of Bethel Amaziah tells Amos, go away. Take this message someplace else. We don't want to hear it here. It's too discouraging. It's too hard. And people want to hear sweet stuff. They want to hear the positive stuff. They want the uplifting and encouraging stuff. People want self-fulfilling messages, self-pitying messages, messages of self-encouragement, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-achievement. They want blessing and success and ease. They want love and not rebuke. Nobody likes a prophet, which is why most of them got stoned to death or killed by their own people that they preach to. And I would say likewise, very few people want their pastor to preach about the prophets. Because generally, in the Bible, before a prophet gets to that last little bit about hope and salvation and redemption, they slug a long time through judgment, and the need for repentance. And this is why the prophets are hard to preach, because to meditate on the prophets is first to feel discouraged, judged. And eventually, once you've pressed through that, it's to be reminded at the end of God's steadfast love and to find some hope. And that's true with Amos. It's going to be true of Obadiah next week, which I hope you'll read. And it's going to be true through this entire series. So I just want to clear the air and tell you ahead of time, prepare your psyche 
to dive deep into some despair before we ascend into the fresh air of God's grace. As for Amos, uh, he was a guy called to share this message of judgment that does end in hope. He's another guy, as far as the minor prophets go, that we don't know too much about. He was pretty much a nobody. He was a shepherd. He was a gardener of sycamore trees. And he was writing about 760 B.C., which was a time actually in Israel's history of great prosperity, a time of relative peace, which is one more reason why all the people wanted him to shut up. Because his doom and gloom message about judgment just didn't seem to fit with the wealth and prosperity and health that the people were experiencing. In a time of plenty, nobody wanted to hear that a famine was on the horizon. And he prophesied at Bethel, which is kind of snuggled neatly between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was called to speak boldly to God's chosen people about rampant disobedience. That's the theme of Amos. If I could summarize his ministry, his message in a sentence, it would be, Amos is a book about God's judgment on the people of Israel for their rampant disobedience to God's word. So let's be bold and dive into that uh, disobedience of God's word among the people of God. First, I want you to look at chapter 6, verse 3. And I just want you to notice this at the outset. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, As a condemnation of the people of Israel, O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. I want you to notice at the outset what happens when people think that God's judgment is delayed or even non-existent. When we think nobody's watching, we do our worst deeds. When we think there won't be any consequences for our actions, we don't fear doing evil. When we think judgment's delayed, when we think it's far away, that's when we think that we can get away with sin. Uh, I remember vividly the very first time that my mother ever said to me the words, just wait until your father gets home. My mom is a pretty uh, little lady, and uh, I could be a little bit of a terror as a kid, very strong-willed, and I remember this house in California. I was probably seven years old, and, and I'm angry because my mom won't let me go up the street and play with my friend. And so I'm just throwing this fit. I'm freaking out, and my mom just says those words, just wait till your father gets home. And because it was the first time she'd ever said that, I didn't really understand what she meant. I mean, I understood what she said, right? I, I, I understood the words that came out of her mouth, but I didn't understand what she meant, that when my dad got home and my mom relayed to him the behavior that I was engaging in, that there would be judgment. There would be consequences. And so because I didn't understand, I kept throwing this fit. I actually threw myself on the floor. I began kicking the closet door so hard, I broke the closet door and also the door frame, Right? And I kept the behavior going even after that because judgment was delayed. My wife's looking at me. She's like, you never told me this story. This is crazy. <laughs> True story. Judgment's delayed, and so sin is easy, right? Because the consequences wouldn't come for a long time. I thought, I can get away with this. And man, when my dad came home, 
Let's just say I learned that delayed judgment can be just as bad as present judgment. Actually, delayed judgment can be worse than present judgment because in the delay, we can engage in even more sin, adding to the judgment that comes later. And from that point forward, my mom threatened me with those words, just wait till your dad comes home, you, you bet, just like that. Immediate change in my behavior. Because the discipline of my dad when he finally got home was a very serious thing. And I think in some ways this is the backdrop of Amos. People are living prosperous lives. There's relative peace in the land. They're living in big homes that they've built for themselves and they have plenty of food. The rich and the powerful especially, they're comfortable and they're at ease. And the fact that there are no consequences, no suffering for their disobedience to God's word, It only makes them act all the more awful. And there's wisdom for us in this. The gospel message. Kurt, thank you for saying that some churches, there's no gospel message, right? How could you go to a church and not hear the gospel message? This is it. Here is the gospel message. There is no punishment for our sin because of what Jesus did for us. If you trust in Christ, He will forgive you of all of your sins. Through his substitutionary atonement, we should have been on the cross. He went there for us. We trust in him. And through that substitutionary atonement, all of our punishment for sin has been laid on him. Thank God. That's beautiful. But that truth can lead to a great deception A deception that Paul addresses, I think, in Romans 5 through 8, if you read it. The deception is that since we are saved by grace and that Jesus took the punishment for our sin, then the threat that my mom made, just you wait till your father gets home, means nothing. It has no power. Let me say it another way. The deception is that we can say that we trust in Jesus And then live lives of rampant disobedience because judgment will never come. It fell on him. But if that is your conception of Christianity, I want you to understand that that's actually heresy. That is not the gospel. Because a real understanding of the gospel message is that because Christ has done this thing for me, because God has accomplished this great work on my behalf, because of the grace that he has given me when I deserve judgment. We respond to that kindness by living holy lives. Yes, we're saved by grace, only by God's kind and tender grace. But his grace changes us. We turn into people who love Jesus. And because we love him, we long to obey him. Like Paul says in Romans 6, 2, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? For the Christian whose heart has been truly converted, transformed, forever changed by looking at grace on the cross, God's grace produces holiness. Not the arrogance and the evil that comes with those who think, My deeds will never be judged. I'm free to do whatever evil my heart desires. 
Israel missed the point that God's kindness and patience was meant to lead them to repentance, not more sin and more evil. Now, as for Israel in the book of Amos, their great disobedience to God's word specifically is injustice. Justice and injustice come up a lot in Amos. That's the core of his concern. Injustice because the commands of God's word are not being followed. Look at chapter 5 with me. And let's start in verse 11. This is the condemnation. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not, shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. Now flip over to chapter 6 and look at verse 4. It says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those to go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that's in it. If you've studied the Old Testament at all, you've probably made your way through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and there you find the law. And the law is perfect. It's so full of wisdom and if Israel had followed it faithfully like they were commanded to do, then there never would have been injustice in the land. The social and economic structure of God's law in the Old Testament made it impossible for people to become generationally wealthy and generationally powerful because God knew the penchant in the human heart to take wealth and to take power and use it to oppress and abuse others. And if Israel was following God's word, doing the things like the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament from Exodus 23, then poverty, oppression, violence, powerlessness, these things never would have taken root in Israel. And so Amos's preaching reveals that although Israel had the word of God, they had no regard for the word of God. Amos brings his prophecy of judgment because Israel's in a state of moral decay. The rich exploit the poor. The powerful oppress the weak. The image of God ingrained in every human person is being trampled on and mocked. Violence and evil reign, and God is furious that these people have made his name into a disgrace among the nations. Now today, there's this vast movement of social justice trying to correct the ills of this world. 
And I don't really like the phrase social justice. I think there's either justice or injustice. It doesn't really matter which realm you put it in. But to be totally bold and honest with you, this movement does have some wonderfully redeeming things about it. And it's got some deeply sinful things about it. The redeeming things are that God opposes the proud. He humbles the powerful. He lifts up the weak. He cares for the poor. He hates oppression. He despises racism, sexism, preferential treatment in any way, shape, or form. These things are insulting to his image, after which every single person has been made. And if we lay aside our pride, our our self-righteousness, even our politics, and instead we take up God's word to evaluate, Christians should all be justice warriors on the front lines of that fight because God himself is a justice warrior. God wants us to love our neighbors. And if we truly love our neighbors, then we desire good for them always. And so social justice should be close to the heart of Christians because God loves justice. But the secular movement called social justice, it also has some evils, I think. The biggest one is that the driving force behind it is not found in the wisdom of God's word, in the fact that every person is made in the image of God. The secular movement for justice is not driven by love for God. In fact, just briefly, I think the secular idea of people fighting for justice is an equity, is sort of an oxymoron. Because according to their worldview, we're all just animals. So think about this second. If this is, if we are all just animals, then let animals fight and kill and devour one another. Because the fact that humans are the top animal is itself unjust. The most powerful and advanced biological entity oppresses and exploits the lower life forms, and that's just biology, which is why you're going to see trees represented in court in the next decade. I'm not a prophet, so don't hold me to that. But here's, here's what I'm getting at, and I'm sorry if I lost you there. The only way that you can really be a justice warrior is if your fight for justice is motivated by the fact that God made people in his image. He loves them. God gives every person dignity and value. People reflect his beauty and his moral attributes. Every person is precious to him because he made them. They belong to him. He loves them. Christ died for them. He is the reason why justice must prevail because to exploit or oppress another person is an assault on the holiness of God. If I wrong you, then I have also wronged the God in whose image you have been made. And this is why God is so offended by injustice because when we treat people in evil ways, It is God whose name is ultimately insulted. God hates human injustice because it's an attack on God. And because we as Christians love God and we love our neighbors, we should fight for justice.
Let's learn that lesson from Amos. But I want you to notice that while the people of Israel were boldly disobeying God's commands regarding justice, at the very same time, they were faithfully going about their religious practices. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. I think this is a little bit of sarcasm, actually, in the pages of Scripture, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel." Now turn to chapter 5 and look at what God says regarding this religiosity, starting in verse 21. It says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Man, do we need to hear these words in the evangelical church today. As Christians, we need to be continually reminded of these truths. God hates our solemn assemblies, our church gatherings, when our lives are defined by rampant disobedience. Did you hear that? God hates it. That's the word he uses in verse 21. I hate. God hates it. When you show up to church to sing songs of praise to him while your heart neglects to follow him. God hates it when we honor him with our lips while our hearts are far from him. This is God's condemnation of his people in Amos. They continue to go about doing their very religious things with no love for God in their hearts driving their actions. They keep showing up at the temple for their church services, but they live as if they hate God by disobeying Him on a daily basis. Let me try and put it in maybe some modern terms, and it starts silly, but it gets more serious. It'd be like you stealing your neighbor's car to drive to church. That's what they're doing. Or stealing their neighbor's lunch to bring it to the church potluck. You think God's pleased by that? It'd be like maybe you having an extra room in your house that nobody's using, and when you walk into church, there's a homeless lady laying there, and you step right over her to come in here to the worship service. It'd be like us maybe gossiping about people in the back of this room, and then when the service starts three minutes later, you're opening your mouth to praise God. It'd be like you sitting in church listening to me preach about God's love while you glare at the head of the person sitting in front of you because you don't like them. 
It'd be like you taking communion to celebrate your friendship with Jesus when there's people in this room who if they showed up at your doorstep, you would lock the door. It'd be like sitting through sermons about loving God and loving your neighbor and then you just leave here and you just totally ignore everything that God has called and commanded and invited you to do. God despises religious actions that don't flow from a heart that loves him. Maybe another way we could think about this is to say that what you do is of secondary importance to why you do it. What you do is very important, but why you do it is also extremely important. See, you can spend your whole life doing all of the Christian things, but if you don't love Jesus at the end, it's all for nothing. You can give everything that you have to the poor. You can spend your life fighting for justice. You can read your Bible front to back. You can attend church services every week. You can lead Bible studies. You can even be a pastor. But if you don't love your brothers and sisters out of an overflowing love for God, then you gain nothing by doing all of that. It's fitting that we're talking about Amos today because tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And Martin Luther King Jr. was a flawed man, like we are all flawed people, but he was a prophet in his day, which is why he too was murdered for the message that he proclaimed. But one of the verses that underscored his efforts was Amos 5.24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And in that famous speech, everybody's heard at least the, you know, that one sentence from He said those powerful words, I have a dream that one day people will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Well, that is a profoundly biblical principle. Like God said to Samuel when Samuel was sent to anoint David king, God said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees through that to the heart. And when God looked down on Israel during the time of Amos, he saw all of the religious pomp and circumstance, worship services and songs of praise and sacrifices and holy days, offerings and religious ceremonies. But the hearts of the people, they were cold. They were hard. They were dead. They were void of any sincere love for God. And when you come here on a Sunday morning, all we can see is maybe your smile, maybe your nice clothes, maybe we hear your voice as you sing. We see you gathered with us in worship. But God sees through all of those things to the content of your heart. And when he looks there, what I hope he finds is Humility, brokenness, a sense of need, a desire to seek him and to follow him and to obey him. What I hope he finds in the secret place of your heart where none of us can look is joyful thanksgiving for what God has done for you. Love for God. And a sincere feeling of goodwill towards your brothers and sisters who are also saved by the very same grace that you have received. 
Because that's what God wants. Your religion be damned. God wants more than that. He wants your heart. Now look at chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Now we know that between Malachi and the New Testament, there was roughly 400 years where there were no more prophets, no more scripture was written. There was literally a famine of God's word. But this is what happens to the people of God who refuse to obey the word of God. God brings famine. Not necessarily a famine of physical food, although he does that from time to time, but far more severely, God brings a famine of God's word. The worst kind of famine. Because Jesus says man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, in quoting the Old Testament. Without God's word, we perish. Your flesh can continue to live eating physical food, but your soul dies. The reason why so many so-called churches no longer preach the gospel is because people stopped obeying the commands of God's word long ago. They got itching ears and they didn't want to hear the difficult words of scripture, so the preacher stopped feeding them. And God sent famine on the congregation. And one of the greatest tragedies among the people of God is a famine of God's word. But if we refuse to do what God has commanded, why should God keep wasting his breath speaking to us? If we refuse to hear, why should he continue to talk to himself? You ever try to have a conversation with someone who won't listen? It's no fun. It's one of the most frustrating things in the world. How long do you continue to talk before you just give up? God is ever so patient with us. He was patient with Israel. This is one of the most important themes from the Old Testament is to watch how over the course of over a thousand years, God waits for people to come to him. He's patient. And at the end of that long, long suffering, waiting, God finally does judge his people. He sends them into exile. He shuts his mouth by sending no more prophets among them. And eventually famine comes when people stop listening. God no longer feeds his people with his words because his words go unheeded. And after that then comes judgment. And I pray our church is a church that hungers for the words of God, that we love the teaching of Jesus. Because if we reject that or we turn from that, there's nothing left for us but judgment. And that's where we'll turn as we finish this out. Look at chapter 5. Sorry to make you go back, but chapter 5, verse 18. Verses 18 through 20. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. 
as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. I I know it's not funny, but that's funny. I'm sorry. Or a man went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Amos tells these people, you should not be looking forward to the day of the Lord. You should be in dread of it. Somehow, the nation of Israel, in all of their prosperity, had come to believe that the day of the Lord would be this wonderful day of their ascension to earthly glory. That it would be a celebration of all of God's favor. They probably came there falsely by listening to false prophets who neglected the truth of God's word. And they became deceived into thinking that God, God was actually pleased with them, which is why so much favor had come upon them. And when the day of the Lord came, they would be rewarded with even more material blessings. But Amos warns them, no, no, you've got it backwards. The day of the Lord, it's, it's darkness and not light. It's gloom and death and destruction because of your hard-heartedness. You are looking forward to this day when you should, in fact, be in dread of it. And so what's the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is the final judgment of mankind. But there's an intermediate day of the Lord between the New Test or I'm sorry, between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, right? The day of the Lord in its final sense, the final judgment, it only ultimately makes sense in light of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so I think there's a double meaning here. Think about this. The crucifixion of Jesus is the central moment in all of human history. It is the watershed moment. It is the moment of division between the sheep and the goats. The Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord as both a day of judgment and salvation, if we were to go to some of the other prophets. And that's the cross. Because in the cross is man's greatest condemnation and also our only salvation. See, in the end, what you will ultimately be judged for is your response to the cross. For those who turn to God with sincere hearts and repentance, for those who look at Christ crucified and they weep at the pride of man, that God came to bring love and we murdered him for his message. For those who see Jesus bleeding and dying out of love for us, and in response they rent their hearts in sorrow and mourning, and they look to him with faith and repentance and trust, those people, they will be saved through the death of Jesus. Christ crucified becomes the light of salvation. Well, for those who look at the cross and declare God came and we killed him and we won. For those who look at the cross and in pride and arrogance, they say, we don't need that help, God. We are fine on our own. For those who look at the cross and reject the grace that God has offered there, to broken sinners. 
For those who reject the forgiveness of those sins in the judgment, they're going to be condemned because of the hardness of their hearts, like Israel was condemned. And so the day of the Lord is this terrible day when darkness covered the earth and the heavens and all creation mourned the death of God, its creator, leading then ultimately to the final judgment of every person. Because from the day of Christ's crucifixion comes judgment and salvation. We see both the ultimate injustice of man who kills God, who comes in grace, and the justice of God who deals with man's rebellion. In the cross, we see the despair of humanity and the hope of the redeemed. We see the hatred hidden in the hearts of man as it's fully exposed. And we see the love of God hidden in his heart as it's gloriously displayed. The crucifixion of Jesus is great gloom on those who reject it, and it's the stench of death for the dying. And at the same time, it's a warm and tender light, the light of joy, the aroma of life to those who love Jesus. The cross is the terrible, unending darkness of judgment come upon those who rebel against God, and it is also at the same time the everlasting light of salvation for those who choose to humbly adore this lowly God. This all took place at the cross when Christ shed his blood and laid down his life. But remember where we started with delayed judgment? For now, the day of the Lord seems far off, doesn't it? But remember what my mom said, just wait till your father gets home. Amos 9.1 says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Christ bore that for you and I. He took it upon himself if you trust in him. But if not, Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. All nations, all inhabitants of the earth from every point in time in history and like Christ came upon unfaithful and unrepentant, arrogant Israel during the time of Amos, Christ, Christ is coming. The judgment may be delayed, but he is coming, and he is coming with a sword to repudiate those who reject the name of Jesus, who look upon God with hatred and reject the cross. But here's our hope. He's going to come with warm affection to us, his weary children. He's going to come with open arms, eager to put a salve on every wound, to speak comforting words in our ears, to commend us for our faithfulness, if indeed we remain faithful. So let us consider the words of Amos, the patience of God, 
who waits so long for the day of the Lord. The holiness of God who longs for us to obey Him. God's desire for justice and sincere hearts that truly love Him. And let us look back in time to the cross, that great day of our salvation, when Christ was nailed to the cross for our sins. And may these things soften our hearts. May they lead us to repentance. May they encourage us to participate in letting justice roll down. May we hunger for the Word of God and fight to be obedient to His commands. Because if the cross does not soften our hearts to the truth of how much God loves us, what hope do we have? Let me pray. God, we are desperate for your mercy. None of us live up to your standards of perfection, and so we thank you for the gospel. That your love for us is not predicated upon our behavior or our efforts or our obedience or our law-keeping, but that in Christ Jesus we are saved from both our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. And we are in awe of you for that grace. But God, I pray that your grace would not be in vain. That at your coming, that we would be eager to stand before you and claim that we have done everything we could to be blameless because we love you. Lord, I pray that we would abandon empty religion and instead seek you with hearts that sincerely love you. Do that work in us. In Christ's name, amen.